Hello and welcome to A City of Champions, a seven-part podcast series diving into each individual game of the Cleveland Cavaliers 2016 Finals run. ESPN's Bomani Jones joins us today to discuss Game 3, the game that had the Cavs on the brink, and the game that they responded with a haymaker blowout win to bring the series back to 2-1. Welcome back to Cleveland. Only elimination games are must-win situations. But tonight for the Cavaliers, this is as close as it gets. Irving on a beautiful feed from James. And talk about a beautiful start if you're the Cavaliers. Curry turns it over. J.R. Smith fakes, throws it back to Jefferson, into James. Irving for three. Pops it in. Kyrie Irving from way downtown. J.R. Smith fakes, sets, fires, connects. James keeps his dribble somehow. Irving back to James. Oh, he throws it down. A wire-to-wire victory for Cleveland. An emphatic response to get them right back in these finals. They lose by 33, come back and win by 30. Welcome to the Chase Down Podcast, part of the Blue Wire Network. I'm your host, Justin Rowan, and today we are discussing Game 3 of the 2016 NBA Finals. With me today is my co-host, Carter Rodriguez. Carter, how are you doing, buddy? Doing well. I think this is the, the game where we actually get uh, our view, our listeners back after <laughs> two shit kickings in Oakland. <laughs> when the Cavs pretty much took it to the Warriors uh, for the first time in a long time in this series. They won 120-90 and pretty much won wire-to-wire, which... We've talked about this series so much about all these close games. This was not one of those close games, Justin. No, no, it was not. This is absolutely the game to get some listeners back, especially after having the uh, the Light Years boys on for the last podcast. But I am very excited to announce our special guest from today, a host of the right time from ESPN, Bomani Jones. Bomani, how are you doing? Good, bad. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm making my adjustments. How are you doing? How are you handling this uh, new isolation life? I feel like I'm handling it better than most people in similar situations. You know, I'm in New York, so, you know, it, 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 it got real here a little sooner than it did for a lot of other people. And I got some privilege, right? Like, I'm not living in a shoebox up here like a lot of people are, so I don't have the kind of anxiety that comes from just kind of being on top of yourself. Now, nah, man, just trying to get a little exercise in, you know. Um, it, it's a, it, it's, it's not. I mean, we'll see how I feel in like two weeks, right? <laughs> yeah. But for right now, it's doing all right for me. Now, where in Canada are you? So I'm in Winnipeg. Uh, I'm right in the okay. middle. The, the the Cleveland of Canada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have no, co- you know, I have no concept of Winnipeg. Like I know Winnipeg because Winnipeg had a hockey team. Well, has now. I guess they got yeah. it back. And so I'd always operate on this assumption that it must be of some significance. After all, you have a hockey team. But that is <laughs> yeah, all I know. We're we're kind of big enough. I I think we're getting near like eight hundred thousand people. So we're okay. we're we're a, we're a big small town. And uh, yeah, I mean the Canada connection is kind of funny. This this podcast is full circle for me because when I was in college. Um, I basically religiously watched and uh, consumed everything from the score. So that was actually how I first became aware of you. I was in college in tw- uh, 2009 through 2011. Uh, so the morning Jones and, and kind of followed you over. And that's how I got introduced to Lebetard and that whole universe. And, and it's uh, it's definitely an honor to have you on the podcast today. No, I always appreciate that because that is the favorite job of any job that I have ever had. And, you know, it was interesting because I had not heard of the score until I started working there. So I didn't really mm-hmm. have a concept of what they were. And now we look back. Um, I started the morning Jones, I guess it's 10 years ago now. Yeah. Looking at where everybody is who worked at the score at the time. Um, like it was a pretty like 
strong, serious collection of talent that was there at one time, you know? And it's interesting because I am probably the number two most American famous person of that time at the score because Renee does wrestling. And, you know, <laughs> that, that'll get you over. Her, Wait, her Instagram, Renee Young? Yeah, oh yeah, yes. Really? Yeah she, yeah, she worked at the score when I was there. I did not know that. Yes. Yeah, and the Basketball Jones guys were there. It's It was a crazy collection of talent and, and people not doing sports media in a traditional way. And that's what really kind of got me into this and uh, kind of fueled me wanting to consume all of this content. Nah, man, it was a good time. This was an interesting game, as Carter alluded to. We As we've been doing this rewatch, a lot of these games, the consensus has always kind of been that Game 7 was the first close game of the series. But so many of these could have gone either way. Even the other Cavs blowouts, like Game 6, uh, the Warriors cut it to 6 in the fourth quarter. Um, game 1 in Oakland, it, Cavs had a lead with the last in the last minutes of the third quarter. But this was different. There, there was obviously Kevin Love did not play at the start of this game. And this was also the first game where the Cavs really started to kind of run plays directly at Steph Curry. Yeah, this was uh, for me, this was uh, when I was trying to look at like big picture topics to pull from this. This is the figure it out game to me. And like, I think sometimes people think that figure it out means, oh, well, now they're going to now they've got the blueprint and they're going to win against a team as good as the Warriors. That's not really how it worked. But the Cavs had gone seven straight games without scoring 100 points and had lost seven straight games to the Warriors. They had five double-digit losses in those seven and only top 40% from the field <laughs> once. So they had no fucking clue how to score. And this was the game where they started to lay the blueprint for attacking this Warriors defense. What did you see from this one, Bomani? What were your big takeaways? Well, the first thing that jumped out to me in the first quarter was like, whoa, look at Kyrie over there playing defense, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like, like this was, it was a very classic, we are down 0-2 and we are at home sort of performance. I think the Cavs learned out to a 9-0 lead to start that game. And you immediately saw it in the way that Kyrie was playing on Curry and then just, I mean, the way they were getting up and down the floor early in the game. And so I want to say they're up 17 at the end of the first quarter. It was 33-16. Yeah. The Warriors brought it down to eight or nine by the end of the half. And that was, you know, then the Cavs just blew their doors off um, in, the, in, this, in the second half, like by the time it had gotten to that point. But I did think that, one, it was definitely a, there was a certain measure of figure it out. Also, Kyrie and JR did not play well in the first two games of that series. And then in game three, JR's five for 10 from three. JR Smith fakes, sets, fires, connects. Smith, three pointer, got it. JR Smith, his fifth of the night, he's got 20. That was so important because there were even stretches in the first half of that game where you saw JR hesitating on shooting threes, which is the most improbable thing that you could possibly imagine. Yeah, but Mark Jackson was like apoplectic on yes. the call that he, that he passed on the three. And I think I was too at the time watching. It was really a really interesting first quarter because this was the beat the brakes off them. They shot 16 of 21 from the field in the first. Kyrie really announced himself in this series and kind of didn't turn back. Irving, shake and bake, and drills it. Irving for three, puts it in. Kyrie Irving from way downtown. Seven of nine from the field in the first for 16 points. Scored as many points as the Warriors in the first. And I really think he learned how to attack that Warriors base defense because it just felt like every play they were just running pick and roll with whatever big was on the floor for Golden State. Yeah, and I always wonder, like when they decided, like now is the time that we're going to attack Steph Curry. 
I never understand why it is the teams stop and be like, all right, so now that we're in trouble, I think we're going to attack Steph Curry. Like, how's that not the game off the top if for no other reason than just to slow him down when he has the ball, right? Like, I, you know, just, just to give him – you got to make that dude run through some screens, right, right? Just make him use the energy that's required to do all that. But I feel like we see this year after year in the playoffs where that is the strategy that people eventually get to when it seems like a fairly obvious one. Yeah, and especially as long as the star player isn't like a Kawhi Leonard level defender, you want to run a lot of plays at that guy just from a fatigue aspect. And obviously, Steph Curry was a little limited in this series physically, and that was something that he was trying to play through. He also had a slow start to the series. Um, but I, I always get curious if a team gets a little too away from their, their base sets when they're just attacking one player. Like, I, I think that's actually something we saw earlier this year uh, when, when the Rockets went to this whole no center experiment um, and, and you saw the Lakers just trying to post up AD every single play. Well, then you start to get out of your rhythm when a lot of those advantages that you may have kind of appear naturally throughout the flow of a game if you're just doing your thing. Um, but, but it was so funny to see them just run play after play at Steph in, in this game. And, and I, I think your point's accurate. This. Why did it take this long to, to start to do that? I, I have a theory to posit on this. I don't think that this was the game where they came in thinking, let's attack Steph. I think this kind of happened by mistake. If you watch this game, he picked up a lot of dumb fouls early in this game. And I think they just wanted to keep him in foul trouble. And I think this really accidentally set the blueprint for them moving forward. Because they really were attacking him in hopes of drawing additional fouls. And I think that they were like, oh, he seems really worn out from this. And I feel like they actually blueprinted the rest of the series on this game just based on the fact that, oh, shit, uh, one, Curry is reckless and was reckless all series with his fouls. And we can get him in foul trouble. We can tire him out because that's really not something they did in games one and two at all. And maybe it was a brilliant move by Lou, but I do wonder how much just the situation led to what they ended up doing that ended up being their blueprint to win the series. Yeah, I think there's something to that, right? Like, that would make a lot of sense. Just the idea, anybody that's out there with two fouls, mm -hmm. you, make, you make that person guard, right? Like, that part, I think, makes sense. And I thought it was interesting that it happened in this game because without love, you couldn't really set up a lot of mouse-in-the-house situations that they were going to switch, right? You know, like, I would, like, you would love it if you're thinking you're the Cavs and you got Curry out there. You run a pick-and-roll with love, and the next thing you know, Curry's trying to figure out what to do with him at the elbow. And like, oh, okay, now we can make something happen. But love's not even playing in that game. And, you know, Tristan Thompson's guarding himself by and large, right? Like, you don't think it's necessarily going to come to that. But the Warriors, like, they got a handful of points because, as I recall, in the first two games, they didn't get 20 points out of Steph or Clay in either of those games. It went a little different in this one. They actually wound up getting some points out of those dudes, but, you know, not even then, it's like 19. I'm looking at it now. Like, 19 for Curry, 10 for Clay, who had that thigh bruise in the game, and then 18 from Harrison Barnes, almost Cavalier. I forget that. <laughs> that was almost a thing once. Um, and they just – the Warriors – the Warriors as a team were always tricky to me because they got the three, that run with those three out of four rings, but I always felt like they were vulnerable. I always did, and I didn't come away from the first year that they won the championship terribly impressed because they were down 2-1 to everybody and had a certain measure of good luck on injuries on the other side. Yeah, yeah, with, to Matt Delvedova with no Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love wasn't out there and they got down 2-1. Like, like, they always worried me, even in the years where they came back and won it. I just, you know, Durant changed everything because he could go get his own shot. But this team had a bunch of dudes where Steph Curry is the closest thing to a guy who can get his own shot, except his game is not getting his own shot, right? Like his game, as much as taking those 40-footers and everything comes up, his game is a lot more how 
the gravity around him affects the way that the ball goes to everybody else and then winds up getting shots. And this was the series, I think, that for a lot of people, I think the Warriors were very much a darling of the analytically-minded people because in the large sample stuff, it was all great. But if you looked at them, they had small sample weaknesses. And this was the first game where you started to see those small sample weaknesses catch up to them. And I think they always kind of, this game almost feels like something that we saw a whole lot later in the Warriors run, which is in a series, just coming out flat for a game of two because they understand that they have this ridiculous margin for error. And it it became worse with Kevin Durant. And I think KD's mood swings can always be a factor like they can be with Kyrie. Uh, Fascinating that those two are together now. Um, But you you look at when they would have extended series against Houston, for example. Like It always felt like they were really never getting out of second gear. And this was a game where they just came out flat. Like As much as the Cavs brought a different level of energy, Steph and Clay just weren't engaged. They didn't have a single point in the first quarter. Um, Kyrie obviously came out guns a-blazing. But one thing I'm curious about, uh, Bomani, is... At the time, the consensus seemed to be you want to slow things down and make it ugly against the Warriors. That's how the Cavs extended the the series the previous year. And they tried that a little bit in this series. It didn't work out in games one and two. And then this game was really where it seemed like they were kind of pushing the pace and, and trying to attack before the Warriors got their defense set. James fires away and hits a three. Irving fires at the time, the, the move was kind of criticized because you don't want to get out in a shootout with the Warriors. But what, what do you remember about that strategy at the time? And, and did you feel that it was the right move for the Cavs? Well, I remember feeling like it was a dilemma. And that kind of touches into what you had just brought up um, when talking about, like, do you run the same sets, right? Like, do you run the things that you always run? Do you get into trouble when you try to go out here and pick on somebody? And the thing was, the Cavs had gotten here about scoring people. Right. Mm-hmm. They had been a pretty good defensive team um, in the previous round or two, but they got to where they were about scoring people. And they had a lot more firepower with this team than they did in 2015. In 2015, when it was just LeBron and the Pips, you yeah. needed to slow that down. Right. It, like, I don't know how else you were going to get anything out of anybody else unless it turned into a grind. This one, they had the players to put up points. So it stood in. And, and again, we have to remember a different coach. Right. Like that yeah. part is big here. And so I thought that the idea of like trying to get up and down and trying to score, it's not the worst idea that you could have because you could try to slow this down against the Warriors if you want. But part of the tricky part of slowing it down against the Warriors is if they got a dude that can shoot from the parking lot, you can only make it but so slow. Yeah, I think that really like you look at how the games were working, like these Cavs weren't losing on defense as much as they were losing on offense. Like they couldn't score on these dudes. Uh, in game one, they gave up 104 points. Game two, they gave up 110. Not crazy totals. They scored 89 and 77. 77 in a finals game actually feels impossible uh, just right. four years later. And they really needed to figure out how to score efficiently because what they were getting killed on on the other end was in transition and off turnovers. So right. that base Warriors defense, I just feel was like, I feel like that's the most underrated part of that Warriors team's legacy is how nasty and smart they were defensively, uh, how they could tag out of mismatches so smartly and uh, help just enough but close out on balance. And that's that's what the Cavs kind of figured out how to attack in this game. And I just feel like I wonder if the Warriors came in with a little bit more intensity to not let the Cavs kind of figure things out with this. Because this functionally ended up being a practice game for the Cavs. It's like, yes. okay, how can we attack these guys? Because we've got a heavy cushion so we can learn uh, it's almost like a training wheels game. And I wonder if the Warriors would come out sharp if this series goes very differently. Yeah, it's a good question because 
the thing with the Warriors that I think we'll appreciate more later, and it was easy to get lost in the, like, the notion of the Splash Brothers and the fact that they, as a team, just shot all these threes. They had three mean wing defenders, right? Draymond, Klay Thompson, and I'm including Draymond here because when Draymond is a wing defender, he's a mean wing defender. Uh, Draymond, Klay Thompson, and Andre Iguodala, those three guys on the perimeter checking guys up, I mean, we're asking for a lot if you're asking somebody to do something with that. So, like, Iguodala, who's so damn strong that you could put him on Kevin Love if it comes down to it just because how strong he is. The same thing with Draymond Green and how strong he was that you could put them on bigger guys. Like, you couldn't just overwhelm them with size because of how well they happen to play on defense. Because, again, when it got to offense for the Warriors, right, they were dependent upon the variance that came from shooting so many three-point shots, but they just didn't have dudes who could get their own shots. Like, as much as people thought they giving Kevin, getting Kevin Durant was greedy for them, I actually thought it was very necessary because I didn't mean, you, know, you go look at who else was out there, who what other guy were they going to get that could come out there and can get his own shot? You go get the guy that's the best in the league at that time and getting his own shot, but they needed somebody like that. And that is, I always felt, when the things got tough for the Warriors, that was the issue. If they couldn't scheme up a bucket, and the playoffs is about your ability to get buckets when you can't scheme them up. If they couldn't scheme up a bucket, where was it coming from? Yeah, that was the weirdest thing about this series was there were so many instances where they just went cold when, when things slowed down. They, they didn't have that guy that could kind of get you that bucket, as you were alluding to. The, the, the other blueprint thing that I noticed in this game, and it's something I definitely didn't pick up on at the time, uh, Breen kind of points out that Draymond is getting really animated and kind of warns, hey, he's either one flagrant or two techs away from a suspension, which Jeff Van Gunny kind of laughs off and, and says that that'll never happen. Hell would freeze over before. Um, but I also kind of noticed that the Cavs were trying to bait him even back then. There was one point where he d- drove into Matthew Delavadova, who um, is irritating for everybody to watch. But Delhi ends up standing over top of him and, and kind of baiting him to, to take a swing or, or do something. And upon watching that, knowing how this series goes, it, it's very smart that they're playing into that element of Draymond because that the edge that he plays with comes with another side, which is the, the fact that he can kind of lose his cool every now and then. So one thing I've always found interesting about the Warriors is that I don't think there's ever been a team as good as this one that we don't think of in like typical, it's fair to say cliche championship medal type terms. Like, I don't think that that really got established that this heart of a champion type stuff around the Warriors until that series against Toronto, right? Like those last Mm -hmm. two games against Toronto, when you really saw it and you're just like, yo, man, these dudes are not here to lose. Like they are here to grind this out we never really thought about the Warriors in that way. Like they were much more of a, like a suburban high school team. You don't think about them as being a team that had that kind of grit, you know, let's just be fair or not, right? Like it's just not Mm -hmm. the way that you looked at them, except for Draymond Green. He was the guy that offered that quality. And I always wonder if he looked around at the rest of his team and said to himself in some ways, I even have to ramp this up above what might be natural to me because there's a void of that on this squad like that's not the guy that Steph Curry is that's not the guy that Klay Thompson is somebody has to be the one that brings it like this like you'd ideally like to think just looking at you know almost in like a corny cliche way look at Bogut you hope he'd be that guy but he's so soft in the head it's ridiculous right like we've seen it many times with him where he wound up going shaky and so Draymond is the guy that powers this team with energy right like there's no other guy on that team that you think of as an energy guy really like yeah even Iguodala right you think of him as a glue guy but not an energy guy and so I always wondered if Draymond how much of like 
how that energy was then calibrated. Because you would think in this 2020 season that Draymond would have been out there losing his mind with all that losing and everything they were doing, right? But right. not really. Not in the way that you would think. Not in the way that it was here. And I wonder how much of that was him thinking, man, this is just what this team needs. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And at one point in this game, uh, early in the first, after they uh, get kind of blown out, out of the water to start the game, they actually show him on the sidelines absolutely laying into his team, trying to get them to give a shit. Uh, so I think it's a really interesting call out. We'll be back with more Game 3 talk with Bomani Jones after this quick message from our sponsors. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, betonline.ag, still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. Or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. All are open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. And if you're into props and entertaining betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. Visit their website today and join for a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE. Bet online, your online wagering experts. One thing I want to talk about in terms of legacy from this series is if there is a game, uh, because again, we've rewatched all seven games at this point, and we noticed that Steph is a little bit better in the series than you remember. But with that said, this game is the building block and the Steph is not good in the finals uh, case. What do you, what's going to be the way you think about Steph's finals legacy if we don't ever see him back in there? It is weird that a player as good as he has been has never been the, like, and I guess you could argue in 2015 he was the best player on his team in the finals, right? We just had a couple of, like, standout right. like standout games that weren't great, but he was not great, I think we would all agree. For him to be as good as he was in that run and not have been great in the finals is just a little bit bizarre. But I think that a big part of it is, one, you can muscle guys a little bit more in the postseason, right? And so a significant part of the success that Steph Curry has had, and this is, look, the reason Steph Curry goes seven in that draft rather than higher is that I think that people were drafting with their mindset on a paradigm that no longer exists, which is to say that the way you could muscle guys back in the day and the way that you could guard them and put your hands on them it molded in our minds the way that we looked at a player of Steph Curry's stature, that you couldn't have a guy like that because you could muscle him. Steve uh, Steve Nash right. was the first player that I remember really watching, and then you're like, oh, that's right, the rules are different now, right? Like, Nash couldn't be that guy in 1997 because you could muscle a dude at that time. Once you didn't have that flexibility, and now that we, you know, we changed the way that offenses run as a result, it then made Steve Nash a whole lot better. But then the playoffs come around, and now you can muscle these dudes. And so I think that that's always been a big part of it is that guys could play Steph a lot more physically in the playoffs than they could in the regular season, and that had a different effect on his game. The other part of it is, and I mean, this is just the thing about the playoffs, man. Them other dudes on your team just aren't as good. I don't have an explanation for like fully what brings it out. I mean, the best line, Barkley always says this, and he's right about this. He's like, look, man, role players bring it at home. They don't really bring it on the road. Stars show up on the road. Those other guys, so much, so much of what they were doing was based on system that now it comes to Steph, and it's like, yo, we on the road. 
these other guys can't get their own shots. You have to be the one to go and do that. And that's not how he's built. And that's not how they're built. Yeah, I, I think this was a game where th- that was really clear because the, the same thing was true for a lot of these Cavs role players, like guys like Richard Jefferson or J.R. Smith, like they needed LeBron to be assertive in order to kind of get them going and get them into a rhythm because those guys are brought in because of how they fit alongside LeBron. This is a Van Gundy point, literally the entire series uh, in the first four games where every time people mention that LeBron needs more help from his teammates, Van Gundy really, I think, smartly rejects it and says, listen, like he's the engine that makes this all work. He has to play well enough to let these guys play well. And I think that I think that's a really smart point that like I think the basketball purists and all of us want that not to be true, but it just kind of has to be right, Justin. No, I, I completely agree. And I've mentioned this before, but it almost feels like this series is the end of the conversation of this team needs to do better at this internally in order to become a champion. After this, it almost seems like a lot of teams are just rushing for that quick fix and we need to add a star or we need to subtract this player. Well, Monty, do you feel that there's been a shift in, in kind of the the basketball conversation? And, and do you think that has anything to do with kind of the, the way that the Warriors were able to put together that that talented group where it really turned into an arms race versus the more traditional arc of a team built. So what I always find so interesting about this discussion is everybody tries to catch the Warriors by doing the opposite of what the Warriors did, right? (laughs) And so what I feel like the Warriors point out, and I've never really seen this explored on a macro level, But there are more talented basketball players now than there have ever been. And drafting now is required. It requires teams to have less information on the front end than they've ever had before because they're drafting guys so young, right? And, you know, getting guys from overseas and everything else. You think about if we were to name the five best players in the NBA right now, and I'm, you know, I'm, this won't be the exact five, but I think people, you know, this will do the job. We say LeBron's one of the five best players. We say Anthony Davis one of the five best players. Now let's throw Giannis and Kawhi Leonard out there. Those dudes were taken at number 15 in the draft, right? You can go mm-hmm. figure out like whoever your fifth best player is that you want to put out there. Let's say you put Steph Curry in there. I think it'd be perfectly reasonable to put Steph Curry there. Steph Curry was the number seven pick in the draft. Like, there are more good players in the draft now than there have ever been. You're more likely to get a star late in the draft than has ever been the case. So, like, with the Warriors, it's not just that they built that team through the draft largely, you know, absent Kevin Durant, obviously, but they built it with mid-lottery, like, mid-to-late lottery picks and a, like, important second rounder. Like, the only guy that was, like, on this 2016 team, you go look at it, the only guy that was really taken high that was on the Warriors is Andrew Bogut, and that doesn't really count, like, for the discussion that we're having here. But once the Warriors got that all going at once, you didn't have four or five years to figure out how in the world are we going to make this happen. And by the way, when the Warriors jumped on the scene with this, we didn't see it coming. We saw the Cavs make those moves, and we're like, okay, cool, but the Cavs have got this. And the next thing you know, the Warriors went 67 games. And so everybody else, I do think, felt that they had to jump up real fast to figure out how to get this done. Now, the test case to me about whether you can do this in a more patient way it's going to be if the Nuggets can ever turn the corner because the Nuggets have done this in the more patient way or like Utah, if they can find a way to turn the corner because they've done this in a bit more um, of a patient way. But I think that people are still operating on an understandable paradigm that in order to win a championship, you need to have two of the 15 best players 
in the NBA. And the Warriors in 2015 and 2016 did not have two of the 15 best players in the NBA. Wow, that's actually a hotter take than, you, than you'd think. Because at the time, I remember when they added KD, a lot of people were saying four top Yeah, because players. you had to. Right. Like you had to say that they were four top 20 players because you had to explain their success. Right. Like if you believe that in order to have that level of success, you have to have X number of top 20 players. And I think the difference, by the way, between like top 10 and top 20 is pretty huge. Right. Like the gap between the number 20 guy and the number 10 guy is probably fairly um, significant. Now, Draymond Green is a top 20 player. Clay Thompson. And you know what? I guess you may say top 20 about Clay Thompson. I think that might be fair to say about him. But. You can't trust either one of those guys to get their own shot. And then, like, right. that's a colossal weakness that they have. The thing about the Cavs, where they went and got their three-headed monster, is that Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving both had big, glaring weaknesses in their games. And honestly, this older version of LeBron James, his defense wasn't a glaring weakness, but it was not a consistent strength. No, he, he wasn't at the point where he could be in the defensive player of the year conversation. And, and it's funny looking at this version of LeBron, too, is because now we see him and he's added so much to his game and he's kind of getting ready for that next stage where the athleticism starts to, to leave him. And I, I think this Warriors team really kind of pushed him to that point, too, because you, you see so many times in this series where he's a little uh, hesitant to, to get to the rim and, and he struggled uh, at this game at the rim just because of the Warriors length. He kind of understood that he needed to add that outside shot. And he shot one of 10 uh, in the second quarter from the field. In this yeah, game. he had a one of eight stretch where he was just missing a lot of shots at the rim. But it is interesting to see this as kind of the, the turning point, though, for both Kyrie and Tristan Thompson, where Tristan Thompson was making a big impact. And when when he was going, it really helped level the playing field a lot of the time because the, the Cavs offense was good. But when he's able to create all those second chance opportunities, then you can start to compete alongside uh, a Warriors level team. Um, but I, I'm kind of curious. Looking back at it now, it almost feels like this was the the prime for Kyrie. Like this union, even though he didn't love it in real time, it, it just was the the perfect role because he, he had in this game where while LeBron was struggling, Kyrie was making a huge impact. But Kyrie can't do that for forty eight minutes. So you you need somebody that's a little more reliable in LeBron. And how how do you feel that this series has kind of impacted his legacy like what would Kyrie be without 20 oh goodness I mean think about everything we say about Kyrie now but now imagine he's not a champion (laughs) right like the dude hit one of the biggest clutches shots that we have ever seen right um that shot after the switch he was just like no I got this man you gotta have you got to have and you remember I think I recall what he said after the game about it Mamba mentality Right. Like, like you, yeah. you got to have a certain thing in you to be the guy who is willing to take that shot. And that is the thing that nobody is ever going to be able to take a, to take away from Kyrie Irving is that he made that shot. Now, some of the stuff after, of course, has affected the way that people have perceived him. But one day Kyrie Irving is going to be in the Hall of Fame. And the only thing that definitively gets him in the Hall of Fame is the fact that he is a champion. And that is what mm-hmm. like that's the part that gets locked into this one. I also think that. I guess I got a slightly different perspective on Kyrie and the decisions that he made because I was kind of in a parallel situation in my own life and career at the same time that he made that decision that he wanted to go, right? But, I Mm -hmm. mean, 
Sometimes you can be on something that is going well. It can be very successful. And you just need to be on something that's a little bit more geared for your, uh, for, for you, right? Like you may feel that right. that's the way that you want to do it. And you know what? The thing that you get to and is for you, it may not be a thing that works, right? And if that's the way it goes, mm-hmm. you got to ultimately live with it. But I can totally understand if I'm the guy that made the shot in game seven of 2016, I want to be a guy who gets to decide that I take that shot all the time. Can't blame him. Yeah, and and I remember when Kyrie left, I actually wrote at the time basically saying that I understood the decision-making, right? That um, even though I, I thought that it was a mistake, that you can understand kind of wanting to be your own guy. Uh, you, you receive criticism when things don't go right, but being in the shadow of LeBron James, you're you're always going to be a little shortchanged on credit. But it, it is funny to look back at this because you, you've heard people say that after this title, LeBron basically kind of made his mind up that he was leaving two years later. Uh, I believe David Griffin's talked about that. Some of the Cavs beat reporters have alluded to that, that front office people were saying that at the time. And I remember after the 2015 finals, we had Dave McMenamin on the podcast and he was talking about, hey, there's a fracture with this Kyrie LeBron relationship. And it's funny to look at them putting on kind of the right public face and giving us the noble lie that we could believe in for 2016 and 2017, because the way that they complemented each other on the court was just so perfect. And it really was the ideal role for Kyrie and one that I guess he has a somewhat similar role with KD if KD can come back and be a version of the same. Yeah, see, I, hold on, let me say this though. I yeah, think the role no. will be I think the role will be different with Kevin Durant though. And the reason is that Kevin Durant is not out here to make plays for other people. Not that he can't do it, but that's not what his mm-hmm. purpose is. So like part of the thing with Kyrie is He's a guy who should be playing off the ball, but is too small to play off the ball, right? Like, you just can't make him a two-guard, but he is a two-guard. He is a uh, – my buddy Shannon always makes the point, but he says about Russell Westbrook. He says, point guard, not pass guard, right? And not that Kyrie <laughs> just won't pass the ball to people, but that's – point guards are born. They're not made. You don't create them, right? He doesn't have it in him in that way. And so playing with LeBron, now Kyrie doesn't have to worry about getting shots for other people. If that's what he does, that's what he does, but it's not his responsibility. That's not going to be the case when he gets over there with Kevin Durant. Somebody's still going to have to get these shots for other people. And that that's where I think that the, the Nets thing is going to wind up getting tricky for him. But for playing with LeBron, where LeBron, and, but this is the frustrating part about playing with LeBron. LeBron's the one that makes all the decisions. LeBron's the one that gets all the credit. And then it's the other stuff about LeBron, like the bus don't leave till LeBron show up and ain't no telling when LeBron going to show up. Like that, you know, <laughs> if you're a player as good as Kyrie, you, you want the bus to leave when you show up, you know? And so I question whether, like, I think the term mistake we have to be careful about. And I think it's fair and understandable why people use it in talking about Kyrie. But uh, Stephon Marbury was a guest on my podcast a couple of weeks ago. We would, most of us would say this, Marbury made a mistake in getting out of Minnesota and going to play for the Nets. Let me tell you who would not say that. Stephon Marbury. Not at all. That's what he wanted to do at the time. That's what he thought was best for him. Boom. And for Kyrie, he already had a ring, right? What, what's, what's two of them? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And um, the Marbury example is a, a great one because you, you look at everything he's been able to accomplish in China and a lot of time just kind of finding that own personal balance is so important. And it, it seems like with Kyrie right now, he, that's what he should be prioritizing. He, he's been pretty open about some of the, the things that have been happening off the court. So maybe maybe that was a, essential to him kind of finding that right It's balance. really interesting for me because like when you're looking at like Kyrie's legacy – 
as a player. He was actually controversial up until this finals and then had like a one and a one year grace period in 2017 when we all agreed he was great. And now he's back to being controversial. Bo, do you, do you think that he's going to be someone who is remembered fondly? No, he will not. And part of that's going to be because he's not going to stay any place long enough for anybody to really love him. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I imagine that someday the Cavs will retire his jersey. Right. I mean, just because the championship will be a nice day. Yeah, yeah, like the championship in 2016 is just that important, though, ultimately. But I don't – and you let me know. I mean, you know, just you're more on this Cavs thing. I don't feel like he's beloved by Cavs fans. I think by diehards he is. Um, yeah. But by the casuals, I think I think when you trash the city on the way out, yeah. like it's just like the number well, one thing well, that's well, like well, hard well, to do for your, your rank-and-file fans, Well, right? especially that city, right? Like, yes. that, like that, that city in particular, and I understand why they feel the way they are, and I understand why they're as defensive as they can be. Um, about it, but you really can't do it there, right? Because they just want somebody to be like, yo, because people from Cleveland love it so much, and people who are not from Cleveland don't really understand what you're talking about. And <laughs> like, there's such a giant gap between those, between that, that they're really tired of everybody. Like, and, and their argument is fair. How did we become the city that everybody says is whack? You know what I'm saying? I actually have this thought because I remember I uh, lived in Chicago for five years um uh from like 2013 to 2018 and i we went up to milwaukee which is like a perfectly okay city i guess but i'm like this is no nicer than cleveland how did cleveland become the city to dump on um and it was it's a couple things one i think it's kind of like just a lot of comedians like don rickles i think was the big one where cleveland was always the one that he went back to is like the city to ridicule and if i'm not mistaken they had some riots in the 60s and that's a great way for people to uh river satin on fire stuff yeah well yeah no there's that there's 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 (laughs) there's that like i've never been there so i try to be very careful i actually went to milwaukee once i found it to be rather charming also it's fine i went in the summer very important distinction um, always important you know I, I went with his war but no i think but i do think with like Kyrie's ultimate legacy if he goes somewhere and wins another championship then this like flips everything up but now that he's out here you know t- talking this harebrained nonsense you know and he doesn't do it we've had a lot of people in the history of the nba who have offered a lot of harebrained nonsense and crazy theories but somehow he never does it in a way that makes it fun yeah it's uh i i always describe Kyrie as the kid who uh in your dorm that took uh, his first sociology class. Yes. And then he like kind of tries to tell you how the world works. Yeah, I don't even think it's a sociology class. It's more like an astrology class. Like, <laughs> like I like what I somebody, and I don't know who this person is, somebody is in a position to get Kyrie Irving's thoughts on COVID-19. And I oh, would no. love to know what they are. Oh man, is he already vice president of the players union? Like when when does that come into effect? Because yeah, I'm I'm very happen. curious about that. I know how that happened. I'm pretty sure they had that meeting on like early Saturday afternoon of All-Star Weekend. (laughs) How many people showed up to vote? It's got to be that. It absolutely has to be that. Um, Interestingly enough, I don't want to hear what Kyrie has to say about COVID-19 because I'm sure it is just a bunch of vague, you can't trust, uh, you know, everything you read. You got got to do your own... Nothing. Yes. There's no uh, no sentence I like less than do your own research. Yes. Because it just means don't read real research. <laughs> well, yeah, That the thing about it, the do your own research. And I'm always like, so explain to me how my research is different than yours, right? Well, it, it's, it's doing, it's just listening to someone who's not an authority figure. Yes. That's what that means. Yes, and I'm like, how did you decide that this is a person for you to listen to? Like, how how, how in the world 
did you get to that point? I, oh, man, it's, there's so much that goes on with him. But there's a, a basketball thing about Kyrie. I'm curious what you guys think about this one. Mm-hmm. Kyrie is kind of on a list of guys. Let me think of some other dudes who play right now that are on that list. Uh, DeMar DeRozan is a good example of this. Um, I had another one I just thought about. Oh, Donovan Mitchell is a guy like this to me also. They're really great to watch, but how much they actually contribute to the bottom line is questionable. Yeah. Um, where, like, Kawhi Leonard, for example, was a guy who contributed way more to the bottom line than you realized he did up until about 2017, right? Like, what his contributions were. But, like, DeRozan is so amazing to watch. And Kyrie, who is probably the best ball handler in NBA history, he's so amazing to watch. And there's, like, a value in the way that we remember you just for the fact that we love the brilliance and the artistry of what it is that you do. Kyrie's going to be one of those guys. And what the ring is going to save him from is you can't win with that guy because you have one with that guy. And I think that when it's all said and done, that'll allow us to go back and appreciate the aesthetic brilliance of his game in ways that will be very easy to ignore while he's out here being nonsensical. Yeah, it's kind of, it's it's sad because there's things that I think would resonate with people when it comes to Kyrie. And when you look at like a production standpoint in terms of like points, assists, all, all that kind of stuff, if you're just looking at numbers, you say, okay, well, this is a guy that's doing a lot of similar things to like a Dame Lillard type. But then there's a human element of basketball that people just forget. And uh, he just doesn't do himself any favors. And it really is unfortunate because I think that has an impact on what happens on the court, how teammates respond to him. And if you don't like playing with the dude and if you think he's just that out there, it's going to impact how much success you have. Well, even, yeah. like, even before we get to like the out there part of it, though, right? I believe it was game three in 2017 where he had the ball late because the Cavs had a chance to win that game three, right? If they win that mm-hmm. game three, who knows how that series goes. My recollection is that he dribbled 20 of the 24 seconds of the shot clock. There was one of those. That 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 and the uh, missed Corver three kind of, kind of haunt me forever. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but that's the thing with him is that, and this is where, like, this is the other side of Mamba mentality. Mamba mentality is a faith in self above all others in ways that are not necessarily productive for the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And that's where Kyrie got like, like playing like Kyrie is kind of like Tony Romo used to play like Brett Favre. You know how good you got to be to play like Brett Favre. Like do you realize how good you have to be to play like Kobe, like to take that as the blueprint of what you're trying to do. You have to be so good to be able to do that. And not even Kyrie even Kobe Irving wasn't good, good enough sometimes. Right. And not even Kyrie Irving is good enough to adopt that template as the way you want to play basketball. Yeah, I I think what's interesting with him, though, is I do think you're right that the artistry of his game will outlast his maybe some of his negative stuff because, you know, just think about what a big part of the media climate that nostalgia is right now. You have throwback hoops on Instagram with every NBA player in the world following it and posting old mixtapes. Like, Kyrie's going to own the old mixtape game like literally there were games there were plays in this game where he missed layups and Mike Breen is just giddy with the angles he's trying <laughs> like he's not even making the shots and he's like Kyrie and uh, he almost got that one you know like that that's the level of artistry he had around the basket that i just think it's going to age well and i think that that kind of stuff is going to artificially raise maybe what his profile should be given the baggage and given some of the weirdness but i do think overall this was a super validating uh win for the Kyrie stands among us and in, in Cavs nation who were told that Kyle Lowry was better 
for for several years. I do want, before we move back to kind of the big picture, I want to run through uh, something we've been doing every time is running through some stray observations, just random shit from a rewatch that you kind of forget about that aren't part of the bigger story, but are still fun to look back on. I want to start with the very beginning of this game. So the Roots do all the intros to every game of this series. Uh, they have a little script and they play some music over it and it's nice. Tough Roots intro in this one because they're talking about the Cavs and they say, and I quote, it seems like revenge is what they're in it for, but art is the way to win a war. What the fuck does that mean? It may seem like revenge is what they're in it for, but art is the way to win a war. So little time left, yet much to accomplish. The drive, the challenge, don't fumble the promise. That's a great, <laughs> wow. Art is the way to win a war. I would love to ask Black Thought, because Black Thought is rarely unclear, right? Like, he, he, right. he, like, I'm not one to call out the roots here, but yeah, I was just like, no, what no, are no, you talking no, about? No. I like, the idea of questioning <laughs> Black Thought for me is, like, sacrilegious. But I don't know what he is talking about. I, I mean, granted, it's better than like common at the All-Star game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. From the land down under, he's always all about winning. From the Philadelphia 76ers, y'all give it up for Ben Simmons. That, that's going to live for a long time. Woo, I mean, it's so easy to reproduce. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an easy meme format. Justin, you give me a stray observation because there's one we have to well, talk about. I already kind of... I already kind of touched on the baiting of Draymond because I, I think that was really starting in this game and they were just trying anything. Um, I, I think that was part of their game plan. Head game started with Steph too, by the right, way. Right, absolutely. It, like when LeBron hooks his arm going down the court? Yes, yes, a- absolutely. Uh, the, the one thing that did stick out though was them kind of laying off of Steph uh, in the third quarter and him getting going. Back to Curry. Left corner three is good to Curry. Curry, count it, and one. Chance for a four-point play. That kind of set the table and got him into a rhythm that kind of lasted the rest of the series because he was absolutely exceptional in, in game four, and uh, I think it made up for a lot of kind of the, the struggles that he had earlier in this game. Um, it, it just it, it is fascinating to see him kind of work through some of the adversity, and it, it's one of those things that if – Game seven goes a little bit differently. I, I think the way that this series is talked about is totally different because I, I do believe that people are just a little too harsh on this Warriors team. Um, as much as I love to get the jokes off, and I will continue to do so, um, this Pod, is one podcasts else. are for nuance, uh, Twitter's for jokes. <laughs> I, exactly. I will build <laughs> off of your stray observation, though, because I mean, I didn't really have one. I forgot to study for that part of the test. Okay. But uh, I, I was going to make kind of a broader stray observation, which kind of ties into why I think the Warriors get the hell that they get, which is, man, the era of the hard foul, right? All it takes is being allowed to clothesline somebody one time in the lane. And his whole Warriors thing shuts down, right? And this, I, I, look, hey, did you watch uh, Dan Clores's uh, basketball love story in those episodes? Like, did you yeah. see the one about the 1975 finals of the Warriors and the Bullets? I, I do not remember that yeah. one, so please okay. lay it out for and us. I, all right, so just to let you know how different basketball used to be, and I'm not even getting real back in my day on you because this isn't even my day. It's five years before I was born. But the Bullets had decided that they really didn't have much of a chance. They needed to go take somebody out, right? Like the plan was that they were going to like, and, and I don't even think the takeout in that case was a hard foul. As I recall, it was just go like start a fight with somebody. 
except the dilemma was Al Adels was the coach of the Warriors, and that was the guy that you didn't want to fight. And so the Bullets decided that Wes Unseld, of all people, Wes Unseld's job would be to go get Al Adels and to stop him from getting into the, the coach, all right, to stop him from getting into the fight, because if he did, people would get hurt. And Wes Unseld was scared. Wes Unseld was like, I don't really want to do this, but I guess I got to. So he says he goes against Al. He said he feels like Al is dragging him across the floor as he is going there because in 1975, a legitimate strategy was let's go take somebody out. Like if somebody could be in the lane and just hit Steph Curry with a don't come back, don't come around here no more. How much different is all of this? And that's why I think people look at the Warriors in a lot of ways as they do, because a lot of what a lot of us grew up on as playoff basketball and what championship medal and toughness was, the Warriors did not display it. I can't say they don't have it because no one ever tested it because it isn't allowed anymore. And I think the Warriors for, for people were the first true sign that the era of basketball that you grew up with no longer exists. Do you think that plays into why this series seems to resonate so much with people? Like, it's funny looking back on it. I, I would say Carter and I are basketball fans more than Cavs fans. Like, we're, we're Cavs fans and that happen to love the, the rest of the NBA. And I, I think if both teams are healthy, the years that they won kind of flips. Like, I, I think the Warriors take this series and, and the Cavs win in 2015. But it does seem like this series resonates in a way the last couple titles hasn't for people that aren't even Cavs fans. And that's something that I always find fascinating. Do you think it is kind of the, the contrast of those styles and and what the Warriors meant at that time with, with Steph Curry kind of leading this Under Armour movement that, that's kind of gone to the side and uh, ch perceived changing of the guard? Yeah, and remember, the Warriors, at once, the Warriors were not a super team. But also, they didn't have, like, the climb to get there. You know, there, there wasn't mm -hmm. the get up the mountain, get knocked down the mountain. I mean, and obviously, you know, the year before they lost in the first round, right? Like, we didn't feel like we watched them climb the mountain like we had seen with other teams. With the Cavs, we had the micro level of it, of, you know, what had gone on with the team the previous two years. And then, of course, the macro of it, which is Cleveland, no championships as a city since 1964, I believe it was, or 65, whatever year. Like, we had that, and so there was a narrative associated with it that you could kind of latch on to. The Warriors never really gave us a narrative in that way that was familiar. Like, even the Raptors did, because what they gave us was one man against the world. The mm -hmm. Warriors didn't give us that. Like, we, we never had that thing to hold on to. Like, they don't fit neatly into any box, I think, that fits previous champions. Yeah, I think that I think that's a really interesting point. Um, it's... They they do seem like such an anomaly and, and how they came together was so unique. And I, I think it's going to be tough for anyone to to really replicate what they did. Like it, you mentioned how where they were drafted, Steph being on kind of a value contract because of the injuries he had. It, it's and, and the funny thing about them not only hitting on Talently in the draft, they all fit together so perfectly. Like especially when they added Kevin Durant, it's like, well, even though you're adding this massive piece, it is a seamless fit with what they Well, do. it's also, like, hard to answer the question, just how good is Steph Curry? I don't mm -hmm. have a great answer for that. I mean, beyond really, 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 really good, right? But, like, just how good is Steph Curry? Because outside of Isaiah Thomas, 
a guy that size typically isn't like that good. And it's hard to feel like you're dealing with such a great player when we feel like that player is not a good defender. And he's a better defender than he gets credit for being, but he's obviously mm -hmm. not a great defender. And that's the best player on their teams. And oh, by the way, that best player on those teams, although I mean, I'd, I'd argue Durant was a better player, obviously, the last, you know, those last couple, but like he hadn't even won finals MVP. Like, it was just really hard to make sense in everything that we've always felt like we knew about a basketball team. The Warriors don't fit any of it. Yeah, it's a really interesting legacy for him. And I think that ultimately the reality of the situation is he he oh, it's because of that gravitational pull that you talked about. I mean, like, yeah, he probably should have won finals MVP in 15, but the way he did it is so different, you know? Yeah, no, there's 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 one of these. Um, and it's funny because everybody, you know, like people talk about Trey Young, you know, and, and there's a way that Trey Young can play now that the door was opened up to, you know, because Steph Curry did. But Trey Young, for what it's worth, makes you realize how that we're too hard on Steph Curry 100%. about defense because Trey Young might be the worst defensive player in the history of the world. Yes. Like, you realize how bad <laughs> he had to be to not get invited to the Team USA camp. Yeah, that's that's a very, very yeah. glaring indictment. Actually, one one thing that was kind of caught me off guard, because I always think like Steph's an okay, like he's a good positional defender, and that's kind of what you would hope somebody that doesn't have the uh, physical tools to be a lockdown guy would do, is at least he's in the right spots. But it kind of jumped out to me when they mentioned in the broadcast, going back to kind of these three observations, that he led the league in steals that year. Yeah, I, I had completely forgot about You that. know, NBA history... If a guy is not a great defender, we have a tendency to turn him into a bad one, right? So did True. you know, I just happened to be looking this up the other day. Did you know that Larry Bird was three times second team all defense? I did not. I, I did. Did yeah. you know that Magic Johnson twice led the league in steals? One year had more than three steals a game. Jesus. That right. pace was and, and outrageous. Are, <laughs> it, it was. That's a big part. The pace is certainly outrageous. But these are two guys that we think of historically as not just being bad, like, like not being good defenders, but we think about as being bad defenders. And mm -hmm. history indicates that really wasn't what it was. And I think part of that has happened to a degree with Curry, because at one point he was like a really, really, really like like young, especially and young guards have the hardest time because those dudes are impossible to guard, especially now that you can't put your hands on them. Um, but yeah. he's a better defender than we've given him credit for being. But we still get left in a lurch and trying to answer just how good do we think Steph Curry is? Well, that's what drives me nuts about the people that try to capture basketball in one stat. Like, we don't have defense captured anywhere near the same level as offense. So when it, it almost – the discussion is kind of, do they do defense, yes or no? It, it's not really discussed in the same way as offense, where this guy does this well, but he doesn't really bring this to the table. There, there's no real nuance when it comes to discussing defense. Yeah, and I, I mean, there's no way to do it. There's no – the other part is when most people are watching a basketball game, there's only but so much focus you can put on to what kind of defense anybody is playing. Like, that's just a really difficult thing to observe. And I think that part of what is attractive about basketball is that it's very simple and you don't need a, you don't need people to explain a lot to you for you able to watch it and understand it. It's almost like playing guitar, right? You learn a handful of chords and you're good. But if you want to be great at guitar, you got to know a whole bunch of stuff that gets hard. But you can get out and play in the field and get some girls to sit around you at a coffee shop or something like that. You know what I mean? Just off, just off a handful mm -hmm. of chords. Boom. You got it. Um, but defense requires a much more trained eye other than he's guarding this guy and he's been blown by. Yeah, it's it's really 
it's a really nuanced game. And uh, I think that's kind of the, the push and pull that every, every, you know, you mentioned this earlier in the pod, every macro indicator about Curry and the Warriors was that they are legendary. But there were just enough of those little micro fractures in the, in the facade that made them vulnerable. Yeah, well, what I learned from the Warriors, and we know this about a bunch of different teams, but 82 is so much different than seven. Like, I remember uh, the 24 uh, is 2015, 2015, that Hawks team that won all those games, right? And got those four. <laughs> yes. I thought they were going to be Cleveland because I just thought it was a bad matchup for Cleveland. And the truth is, it was a bad matchup for Cleveland. What was the problem, though? The Hawks didn't have that dude, right? Like, not even talking about a LeBron James, but they didn't have of that guy on the team. And on 82, that doesn't matter as much as it does in seven. That's why it was going to be fascinating to see what happened to the Bucks in this postseason because Chris Middleton had gotten better and had come up and become that guy. But we saw if you had a Bam out of bio type that was strong enough and just enough quickness to guard Giannis, what in the world were the rest of those guys going to do? And the Warriors put you in a similar place. The difference was, unless you could guard Steph from 50, there was a certain element that you could not take away. But we saw it happen a lot with their offense, where you're like, yo, who can get their own shot? Clay Thompson's afraid of taking layups. Is it, you know? This, this like, is where stuff is the wild. Cavs were, especially, uh, like, as much as people like to rip on Thompson's contract, this is the one spot, though, where they said, we're one of the only teams in the entire league whose center can credibly switch onto this guy and junk up this offense. And I really think that's the biggest difference in the series is if they don't have Tristan, they don't win the series. Tristan Thompson was, I mean, I always thought he got a bad rap on that contract, right? If you had put Thompson out there on the open market, that's probably the contract that he would have gotten. Like, like, like that, a young big who could switch on pick and rolls, because what we learned and what got lost is, and I think what was tricky about Thompson was his value was in the horizontal plane more so than the vertical plane. He was a big man that wasn't a rim defender, but could stretch out pick and rolls. Yeah, that kind of thing's worth $15, $16 million a year. And that don't even sound Mm -hmm. crazy now. No, no, it really didn't. And and they were also kind of anticipating that the gap was going to go up. And and then there's also just the the whole Rich Paul thing, which people get really weird whenever it's something to do with Rich Paul. Um, for some for, reason, for some reasons that are fairly obvious. Yeah, yeah, some something I just can't wait to put my finger. Yo, on. you know what though? Um, <laughs> I think it's a little complex with Rich, right? Like part of it is obviously race. Another part of it is that he's basically LeBron's proxy, right? You know, and that yeah. part makes people uncomfortable. But this is something I figured out about the aging game for a long time, and this is what throws people off. Not everybody can be an agent, but anybody can be an agent, right? right. Like, like right. you don't. You don't really need you need game to be an agent, right? You don't need to go to Harvard or Yale to get this done. <laughs> like the ability to appreciate and understand leverage in an experiential way is an innate quality, right? Like you can go, you can take a person and give them all the books and give them all the charts and all the strategy on what the game theory is on all of this stuff. In the end, it comes down to what kind of stomach you got to wait this out, right? Like what kind of heart do you have to stand in this moment and make it happen? And what Rich demonstrated with Eric Bledsoe and a couple other guys is I got all day, baby. <laughs> I can, I, yes. And Tristan yeah. Thompson, another example. I got all day, baby. And so they look at Rich and Rich. I mean, look, I met Rich one time. I met Rich on the floor at the NBA Finals in Miami. And I'm standing there with uh, Connor Shell, who's uh, an executive at ESPN. And Rich comes up and Rich is wearing this light gray suit with like a white T-shirt and some white low top Air Force Ones. And he's talking to Connor. And, Con- and he looks at Connor and he's like, oh, yeah, um, I was talking to Bob from Disney the other day. And Connor's like, Bob, from- are you talking about Bob Iger? <laughs> yeah, Bob from Disney. <laughs> Unreal. 
right, 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 right. Bob from Disney, right? Like that's, but you know what he is to Rich Paul? He's Bob from Disney. Because Rich Paul ain't spending no time talking to anybody <laughs> under the CEO at these places, right? So to him, right. it's like, oh yeah, Bob, the guy in charge at Disney. You know I mean, he's like Fortune 5, like all these companies that he's had conversations with and everything else, right? So for Rich, Rich looks like he should not be there, except what it takes to do Rich's job. It's really, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's easy to find somebody who can do it, but it, the guy who can do that job doesn't have a look, you know? Like, there is no one particular way that these guys seem to be. It's just about what kind of stomach you got for this. Yeah, you're, you're, you're capacity no, right, to both not give a fuck about what anyone thinks of you while also being really charming and having people want your approval. The reason most of us in the game have agents is because we don't have the stomach to be the agent. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't really have it in me to get into it with the bosses in this way. That's not how that's not my get down, you know. And so Rich has that. And like, you know, LeBron gets him to the place that he's in. You know, he's LeBron's part and LeBron plays this real smart, gets him the jobs at these places to learn the game. And then it all turns over. So the people, they're just like, yo, all he is is LeBron's agent. Right. Like, like, how hard is it to be LeBron's agent? But he's out here getting money for like whichever one of the Morses he has. You know, he's getting money for Bledsoe. He's out here getting money for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, he's very, very good at what he does. Uh, and uh, I think it's almost kind of his job to be hated in a lot of ways. I mean, I think Drew Rosenhaus would tell yeah. you the same thing. Like, you take the hits so your uh, your client doesn't. I do want to take it back to the game before we go because we're running out of time, Bomani. Sure. But we would be remiss. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about the Kyrie LeBron alley-oop where LeBron dives on the floor, kicks it up to Irving. Irving throws perhaps the worst lob LeBron's ever gotten and still finished, and LeBron yams it. James... Keeps his dribble somehow. Irving back to James. Oh, he throws it down. I feel like that might have been the moment it all ended because LeBron and the Yams and he's looking at Kyrie like you can't throw it no higher. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like like that's the best you got. That may have been the that may have been it right there. That was. Uh, <laughs> I just feel like that that's the play of the of the series in a lot of ways. Justin, you kind of referenced. I believe it was in our game six pod. So spoiler alert. Uh, yeah. But you referenced that the JR to LeBron oop, where JR threw it over head, his head, was the first time you felt like the Cavs could win this series. I almost wonder if that oop was the first time the Cavs were like, oh shit, we can hang with these guys and we can actually clown these guys. Yeah, I think that's a, and, and those things matter, man. Like confidence is a, like you look at the way the Raptors played this season. You think they play that well this season if they don't win the championship? Like if they're the same exact team, the same exact set of dudes, and nothing's different other than they don't win the championship. No. Like I don't have any scientific link between these two things. Like I can't prove it and I try to stay out of this territory, but do you think they win it without them? No, uh, no, no. I mean, excuse me, not so much winning, but do you think they look as good as they did this year? Like is Pascal Siakam the dude he becomes? Championship swagger is a, is a genuine thing. And I think that's half the reason the Cavs were so competitive with the Warriors in 2017 when the Warriors had a pretty significant talent upgrade at that point is just they they kicked ass all Eastern Conference playoffs because they had that championship swagger and it matters knowing that you can win is such an important thing and I really don't think the Cavs had that concept in the first two games and barring a dick punch you could actually watch it leaving (laughs) LeBron's brain in game four yeah. And also look at how much better LeBron was in the finals before and after 2011. Mm-hmm. Right. Like even even like 2012, like I felt like the 2013 LeBron finals was just I mean, I, I was there for those la- for, for those Miami games in that one. That was just a different animal. But like 
once he knew he could do it, everything everything flipped up. Yeah. No, I, I feel like Steph Curry, after going through these finals, would be able to handle the injury that he was playing through a little bit better. I think he was kind of struggling to kind of dig deep and and find kind of that, that mental toughness that he needed. I, I hate using that, but like you, you no, how, but there's how, it, man. Yeah, how you, how you see, let's say Iguodala in the series where his back is really seizing up and just the ways, the, the mental cues that he needed to find in order to play through the injury at times. Like that's something that you learn from experience. I, I think it, it was inexperience more than anything else because they didn't have that traditional uh, growth arc as a team. And and look, mental toughness is an up and down thing, man. Like one thing I think that is very interesting about the Warriors-Cavs matchups as we described them is Curry and LeBron are two superstar caliber players that we have famously seen get caught in their own heads. Yep, yep. In a way that we don't think about with anybody else. But like we see, I mean, we see it to this day with LeBron's ability to get caught in his own head. And we'd seen it also with Steph. And, you know, like it, that's a fascinating component to the back and forth with these teams. But the truth is, man, like, the problem is you never want to call somebody weak, right? No. Like people are real no. sensitive about that. I totally understand it, man. But there's some levels that some people ain't built for, right? Like I think about me when I used to play, you know, basketball as a youngster. One-on-one, I'm good. Two-on-two, I can do it. But as you added more people and more decisions and more people I might let down by not doing something right, the more of a basket case I would become. Oh, I'm, I sympathize <laughs> with that, man. I, uh... I, I genuinely think uh, I am 10 times better one-on-one than I am in a five-on-five. I want to ask you before we let you go, because we're, you, you're being very generous with your time, but I wanted to get one more question from you. You're telling a grandkid or something about this series. What, what's the way – how are you going to remember these finals? It is, it is interesting because we talked about this without really talking about LeBron very much. It is the day that he became hater-proof. Yep. That is, I think I mean, that's 100% correct. <laughs> That's what this comes down to. It is the day that he became hater-proof. He won a championship in Cleveland. He went back, said he was going to do it. They got it done. They beat the best regular season team that we had ever seen. And he wasn't just a guy that was on the team that won the championship. He absolutely carried them there. His Game 7 performance is one of the great I'm not losing today performances that we've seen. And the truth is, and I get why people who lean more on numbers on these things don't like really get into this. And I think actually people who lean into this kind of stuff, who avoid this kind of thought more so are people like, I ain't never played no super high level of basketball, but I played some basketball. There's some dudes that just ain't losing, man. Mm -hmm. And on those days, he was a dude who just was not losing. And he's had those games in his career. Uh, 2012, game six against Boston. 2013, I want to say game six. uh, No, they lost to Indiana in that year. It might have been 2012, but also against Indiana. We're not losing these, man. 2007 against Detroit. James scores with 2.2 to go. He has scored the last 25 for Cleveland. He had one of those. We're not going to lose this game and came with just some of the most amazing plays. The the block, obviously, the chase down. But if he had made that dunk on the play where you're never going to convince me he didn't break his arm. I just don't see any way in the world he did not break his arm coming to the ground. If he makes that dunk, that is the greatest dunk in the history of the NBA playoffs, period. Yeah, yeah and that would, I would definitely have <laughs> John's alley-oop in this one. That, that would have been 
uh, I still remember that moment where he's laying on the floor. I was absolutely convinced the Warriors were going to come down and uh, end up winning that game in the series. But uh, I'm very grateful that they didn't. And I'm very grateful for your time. We, we really, really. Well, uh, actually, oh, I, want to ask, I want to ask one question while I'm here. Absolutely. You know, it is a, there's a caviness to this. And my food's going to take a little while to get here. And, you know, it's not this series. This is obviously from the i don't remember which year it is anymore i think it's 2018 mm-hmm. but i just need to know as fans of the cleveland cavaliers <laughs> when jr goes the wrong way man like, um I think this is a real dan lebatari moment where i'm like please tell me about the most painful moment of your entire life but I, you want to take the lead the, the funny thing about that was um at the time uh we were with uh, leverage to chat, I believe. So that's the Jade Hoy um, podcast mm-hmm. network. And I went on uh, their uh, daily kind of recap podcast immediately after that. And I was just laughing. Like I was laughing. It, that moment doesn't carry as much pain because as much as I like to get carried away in games, I had absolutely no expectation that that team was going to win the title. So that was kind of the difference between four games and five games in my mind, potentially. So it wasn't really the end of the world. I I think it just, it was just one of those moments that was so absurd that I couldn't help but laugh in the moment. I was, I was so busy. uh, If you'll recall, Bomani, there was a, uh, a, a block charge overturn <laughs> just prior <laughs> where LeBron took a charge on KD. They reviewed it and uh, overturned it or overturned it, called it a block. And I was already apoplectic about the overturn. So I was just in pure, like, I don't know why, because every Cavs fan you'll talk to actually any, at least of the diehards, like your casuals might really remember that and consider it like super painful, but, most of the diehards just have a lot of love for JR mm-hmm. in the aggregate. I, so I think like, LeBron fans still dwell on that. Yes, LeBron fans might dwell on it, but Cavs fans don't because we just love JR for everything he did and, you know, just the, the shirtless era and all that stuff. It's so funny how JR gets that and Kyrie doesn't so fast. It, it is absolutely, it's really fast. JR didn't try to hurt our feelings. Yes. <laughs> but, it, but even before, yes. right? It's just there's something different. Mm-hmm. That play was just so fun. I just like LeBron's reaction will never stop oh. being the funniest oh. thing in the world to me. It's hilarious. Because none of us could imagine how <laughs> furious he had to Played be. the best there game is, of his life, maybe. <laughs> there is nothing that LeBron could have done in that moment that we would not have found to be justifiable. Yeah, no, it was, absolutely. Uh, for whatever reason, that was the game. Because I logically, I'm right with Justin. Like, they weren't winning that series. But I that's the first game I've ever had in my life that I – Woke up the next day pissed off. It, it, it would have been JR justifiable if LeBron it. broke his hand on JR's face versus the whiteboard yep. after the game. Yeah, yeah, and don't forget JR's myriad explanations. Oh, it was it was yeah. painful, but the whole loss was painful. We have an understanding of where we stand in the sports hierarchy. Like I, I have realistic expectations. I think the burden being lifted with 2016 certainly helped. Makes everything easier. I'll tell you that much. I don't know how I would have processed that moment if that wasn't there, but I, I mean, I, I know as Cavs fans, we're, we're probably not going to see a whole lot of great times. I, I know that my sports existence has a lot to do with losing and handling losing well. So um, <laughs> that was a moment. It's funny to look back on now. It was funny in the moment, but also a little frustrating because it did waste what ended up becoming one of LeBron's best finals games. Yeah, he was so good at all those finals. It just didn't matter. He did. Let's be real here. 
he did need more help from the teammates, but that was largely because they were facing a bit of a juggernaut. Oh, yeah. A juggernaut I still don't really believe in. And after five years, after all of this, I have no idea what to make of how I feel about the Warriors. And, and 2018, the cover was just dry. Like, that that's part of the LeBron experience. Yeah, that team you, you, he, Yeah, he, he comes and he, you use all your long-term assets to try to win in that window, which is completely the right strategy. But that team had nothing left. That team should have lost in the first round. Like, they almost lost in Game 7 to Indiana, and Boston kind of choked it away in the conference finals. So, well, th- I mean, halfway through the season, they basically were, like, playing Scrabble, but had the X. <laughs> <laughs> and they just threw the other six in and was like, well, let's see what we get back. <laughs> all right, let's go. It was uh, not great. Sorry. Absolutely not. If only uh, Kevin Pritchard didn't shoot down the the Kevin Love for Paul George trade uh, before. Oh, man. That, that. Paul George, another guy I'm never sure exactly how I feel about. No, he he, he doesn't. He's not someone who uh, engenders strong takes. He's so good. But not in a way that I give a shit. And he's like 6'9", right? He's a 6'9", two guard and a 6'9", power forward, right? And all of these things. And I have no faith in him whatsoever. My, my favorite, in, in, my 20, in 20 years, people are going to look back at film like they are inevitably going to do now and say, when he was locked up by Joe Ingles, it's going to be he was locked up by a plumber. <laughs> Paul Yo, George, Joe, uh, my favorite uh, trivia for Paul George, his last year at Fresno State, second team all whack. Couldn't make first team all whack. <laughs> That's and, and give it to Larry Bird, right? He, like, he saw it and he got it. But Joe Ingles is... <laughs> I, I love Joey Inglis because one thing I do enjoy in this life, right? And it may seem sort of counterintuitive, but I greatly enjoy seeing what happens when the white dude is underestimated. And the thing about Joey Inglis <laughs> is that the white dude is not simply being underestimated because he's the white dude. He's being underestimated because look at him. <laughs> he looks like he's got right? a like, cigarette tucked above his ear yeah, at all times. yeah. Yeah, like he looks like I said, I forget who I said this about, maybe Yogish, but I used a different example. But I'm talking basketball now, so we can do this. Joey Joey Glass looks like he went to his personal trainer with a picture of Paul Pierce and was like, Make me look like this, (laughs) right? Like, this this is what I'm going for. I think I said it about Jokic. He took the Tom Brady combine picture, was like, This is what I want to look like. Oh man, that's what A Glass looks like. He'd be out here killing him, (laughs) killing him. It's got to be so infuriating. That is one of the weirdest series of all times, that Thunder Jazz series, because I also remember Ricky Rubio went off in the penultimate game of that series, and then Russ vowed to lock him up. And oh. and then then SportsCenter, after the Jazz won by like 20 to eliminate the Thunder, they said, Russ was all in on defense and posted Rubio's stat line. I'm like, I don't really know. If, if that's the win, you didn't win. <laughs> Look, I I may be a bit of a Russ apologist, right? I acknowledge this because I just love the whole idea of him. He just goes so hard. If he could just make a couple more shots, just a couple more shots, right? Like he got too much of the blame in the Durant Brooks era. Brooks, Brooks, yes. Brooks. <laughs> Y'all out here being mad because Russell Westbrook ain't passing the ball to somebody standing still. Right, right, like, oh man. See, but I, I blame all those people so because I, they drove 
I, I like blaming Russ and Scott Brooks because I like to say if they were doing things a little differently, Kevin Durant wouldn't leave for Golden wouldn't State. Wouldn't have ruined our, our rivalry yeah. and legacy. We had a good thing going. Thanks, we had a good Jerks. thing going. Oh, Why'd you have to do that? God, I love Russ so much. Like, when people tell me they don't like Russell Westbrook as a basketball player, we are just in this for completely different things, <laughs> right? Like, what brings you to this party? does not bring me to this party that's that's kind of a like that that's where we are like i feel like a great metric for that is so how good do you think malcolm brogdon is right because malcolm brogdon had like that 50 40 90 season where he took something like nine shots a game yeah. and i'm like oh so we oh okay so that that's what you think yeah, that, that was a jose calderon 50 49 <laughs> yeah yeah it's like oh that's what you think okay got it i i think so. that russ is divisive uh among everyone but i think that there is a certain if you are the Malcolm Brogdon guy, and that's your brand, uh, I think those are the people Justin and I tend to fight with the most. Yes. I hate those people. <laughs> I hate those. I hate those people. You know, the hipsters. reason I hate those people, I hate those people because I'm not convinced they like basketball. They, they right? like it for di- could, they, they get like something different right. than we do. They yeah. like being right yeah, see, and no, subversive. They, they like being right. Like my thing on that is if you can only appreciate basketball through the lens of the bottom line, then you don't really like basketball, right? Like if you can't appreciate basketball for some of those more intangible, non-quantifiable qualities, then you don't really like basketball, right? You like math problems. Yeah, you like math problems. And look, you have, there's room to get frustrated with Kyrie yes. and not like you know the way that he go about it and to point out some of the inefficiencies of his game and ask whether he makes teams better. All of those things are perfectly legitimate. But if you don't just drop your jaw at some of the things that he does, mm-hmm. then you don't really like basketball. I, I mean, if we were in it for the bottom line, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. Like That's why I Fair. often say that the decision was one of the best things that happened to me as a sports fan because it reset me and I learned how to not live and die with every result and kind of enjoy the sport more as a whole. I, I got to a healthier place personally. through. <laughs> Justin and I always just... joke that we're better NBA fans when the Cavs suck. Yeah. <laughs> so let me tell you, just because it's here and I got a little more time, something fascinating about the decision that I haven't seen anybody else talk about. Did the decision ruin the NBA regular season? Or did the 73 and 9 Warriors do it? And I ask that because as much as people talk about the NBA regular season doesn't matter, it sure as hell mattered for four years while LeBron was in Miami. Mm-hmm. It mattered a lot while he was there. And it mattered to a degree with the Warriors during their run, and we paid attention around it. But once a 73-win team didn't win a championship, maybe that was the thing that ruined it. But 10 years ago, we cared a lot about the NBA regular season. It's tough because yeah. not it's only was it a seven, people don't care. It, it's not only a 73-9 team loss, a team that actively didn't care that much about the regular season one. Yes. Like yeah. that that's yeah. a tough confluence where the Cavs, and it almost felt like I think. I think the biggest thing is it's not just that it happened. It's that it came from this sense of like LeBron, the wise uh, vet who's done it before, came in with this approach of it doesn't matter. And then right. this this young, scrappy Warriors team that, uh, you know, was all all excitement and fun and kind of like still trying to prove themselves coming off mm-hmm. of the injury riddled title win. That, yeah, I, I think yeah. with it Kevin just Durant, like wisdom won. And that's why the regular <laughs> season doesn't matter anymore. And plus with Kevin Durant, it was kind of why are we buying into these regular season storylines when the standard is so high? The the number of teams people care about is different. I don't like the I don't think the decision ruined the NBA regular season. What I do think the decision did was laid the groundwork for Kevin Durant to make the move that he right. made. And that's a fascinating thing because it's almost like 
in some ways, LeBron um, and his whole player empowerment that seems to all be assigned to him, it, it kind of was his undoing when it came to that Cavs title window. Yeah, and the whole player empowerment thing. Here's what, to me, this all comes down to. LeBron is the first dude to treat this like it's AAU, right? Mm -hmm. Like somebody, a, a former dude I knew, he's a pretty good, high, like a very good high school basketball player, but not like a college player. But he made a good point to me once. He was like, man, once somebody goes to prep school, this becomes a job, right? Like once a guy decides he's leaving his high school to go to Oak Hill or really anywhere else, like once you go to school somewhere just to play basketball, this officially becomes a job. These cats aren't sentimental to anything coming up, right? There is no high school to have an affection for. There's no alma mater to have an affection for. And so they're looking at NBA teams the way they look at everything else, mm -hmm. at the AAU squads and everything else. This is who I play for right now. How do you decide who to play for next? Who, who going to win? <laughs> okay, cool, right? Like, you go tell all these cats that have been on these AAU teams. Because the thing I found fascinating about LeBron was LeBron did stay at his own little high school and, play, you know, play with his partners. But – He'd been playing against these guys that were teaming up. And he's like, yo, okay, got as far as I could with this by myself thing. Now I'm going to go do what everybody else has done literally my whole life. Yeah. And the, that's what these cats come up on now is that's how they go around from team to team. It's really and plus the owners though. did it to themselves by shortening the contract length. So it gave sure, them yeah. way more leverage. Well, and the whole notion of the max contract. Let us not forget, Sacramento got Chris Webber to resign. All right? Mm -hmm. Like, they had a way to get guys to stay. It just cost more money than they were willing to spend. Yeah. The owners really did dig their own graves in a lot of this stuff. The one thing that I think is interesting that with LeBron, though, in terms of the player empowerment in the team-up era, that I think kind of didn't happen for Durant. And I think the reason that, among the other optics of Durant's move, I think the fact that LeBron lost first in Miami actually ended up being really good for the legacy of that Heat team. Yes. So the thing I think that becomes interesting, 2014 for them was not nearly as compelling, right? But 2011 obviously was like the ultimate fishbowl. Mm -hmm. um, 2012 was a suspenseful run through those playoffs, right? That ultimately came in them handily disposing of the Thunder. But, you know, we had some, we had some hiccups along the way to getting there. And then 2013, where they had to go seven with the Pacers, then they had to go seven with the Spurs, and they were down to their last quarter at the arcade in game six. There was It was so suspenseful, right? Like, it was, nothing will ever be as entertaining as those four years were. Nothing. Our listeners are going to get sick of me hearing this, but I always reference a Zach Lowe piece when he was talking about Durant's move to uh, Golden State. He said that, Yes, people like to see greatness, but what they really like is to see greatness challenged. And that's yes. what happened with those Heat teams. Right. Well, also the thing that happened with the Heat teams that was different than when Durant got to the Warriors was people looked at the Heat like, well, y'all better win now. People looked at the Warriors like, well, damn, they go win now. <laughs> And yeah. it's not the that same is thing. a very different thing. I mean, you know, like, don't forget that first Heat team. The, the, the starting point guard on opening night was Carlos Arroyo, and the center was Joel Anthony, and they went and got Mike Bibby off the street. <laughs> he got a standing ovation in his first game in Miami. Yeah. Like, they had to add pieces. And the, the idea that they won the East, which came down to really, to me, Boston getting hurt. Like, I always thought that that team was going to lose in the second round because they just had glaring weaknesses at the point and down low and Boston could have beat him I think if Rondo didn't wind up getting hurt you know and all the things that went you know that went in that way 
But it was like that team wasn't nearly as good as people thought it was in the beginning, but they were never going to move off their priors. So it became a nanny nanny boo boo sort of situation when I really thought that they out they outperformed all my expectations that first year. But I'm like the only person who ever says that. Hmm. That, that is an interesting point. I remember them trotting out the uh, corpse of Vilgalskis. Yeah, Gary Stackhouse is on the roster on opening night. Um, like they had to add Rashard Lewis. They had to add Ray Allen. They had to add, I think they got Mike Miller. Yeah, they had to add Battier. Like that team, their thing was, let's just get these three dudes. And then they had to fill it out with minimum contract players. It's crazy that they cut uh, Patrick Beverly in training camp way back when. I mean, he yeah. obviously he wouldn't be able to contribute at that time if he stuck around. Yeah, it, it's but it's that like, he, it's just so funny to see that day. Like it clearly wasn't a mistake because he wasn't ready. If they did not cut him, they would re- have re- they would retire his jersey. <laughs> that's actually a really good point because that Riley wouldn't let a guy like that go. That's that's Haslam no, no, in a no. point guard's body. Perfect fit. Yeah, perfect fit. Yeah. Uh, absolute culture fit there. Well, and I don't know. Maybe they needed Chalmers to get yelled at. You know, like it <laughs> it helps to have someone that everyone just shits on in the locker room. Yeah, he served a value, man, because everybody, even Chris Bosh did it. Yeah. Everybody did it. Like, that's the thing about that team that'll be lost is there were so many fun little wrinkles, and there's no team that everybody paid attention to. Like, since then, like, we all paid attention to that team. So, like, everybody's screaming at Mario Chalmers and Mario Chalmers' confidence being totally unassailable. It's so fascinating. He should have been miserable there. <laughs> but instead was but like was it no no I'm, I'm really good i'm just as good as you guys yeah, he, you know he knew what what he was getting into he knew his role his place no i i do look back at that team fondly i look back at a lot of these teams fondly including the this warriors and you it, know what i look back is, at fondly justin is anyone who makes me really care because i yeah. we've gone through a couple years of not having that yeah make, make me feel one way or another about you and uh i'm i'm pretty okay with you being part of the equation yeah, like one of the worst things for the league right now is that there's nothing to dislike about Kawhi Leonard. Yeah. That Clippers team is um is uh toast. White toast with no <laughs> butter. I don't yeah. I don't give a shit about them. It's not good. I don't. It's the it's the weirdest thing. They weren't going to win the championship this year, either way it went, but it's the they don't have anybody that inspires any anything. Like that's part of the thing with the Bucks. Like Giannis doesn't really bring it out. Yet. No. No, he really doesn't. He's starting to get there where he's talking shit with Harden, though. I feel like that was a good step for him. Yeah, but that's a, that's such an easy that's such an easy uh, uh, foil yeah. though. Right? He's got it Harden Harden's and he's got it Ben Simmons. Yeah, like Harden's another guy with zero stands. Like, it, like, like you, you have to just really like the Rockets to be a big James Harden fan at this point. Yeah, there, there, there's the casual fans aren't going to come after Giannis for that. It, it's it's no, basically it's just a shame. Fans. Harden is so good, but you know he also doesn't talk very much. Yeah, that that's that's one of the most boring pressers in the league. I used to I used to work at a sports network, and I part of my job was logging post game sound. And every Harden interview is just torture. No, he doesn't do it. Like that is that beard has made him literally hundreds of millions of dollars because without it, like you think Adidas is giving him a deal with? I think it's an albatross. I don't think he wants it anymore. (laughs) I think Uh, I think that and the unibrow have to be two things that like like gave them some notoriety early in life and as they get older they're like, can i sh- shave this fucking thing <laughs> well also part of it with harden though is he got his grill fixed which makes the beard a lot less necessary. that's actually that's a really good point his teeth were terrible i kind of forgot that yeah yeah, yeah no he went and got, he it was when he was with uh that kardashian woman <laughs> and i imagine that, that that somebody was like yo look if you're gonna kick it with us if you're gonna be on tv 
Yeah, no, nah, man. I mean, I got my teeth fixed in my 30s. Because what happens is if you don't do it when you're young, you don't think about it anymore, mm. right? And if you're able to, like, still meet women at the same time, you're like, what's the big deal? I went to the dentist, and they're like, look, it's going to get harder to clean these things as the years go on, and your teeth going to fall out. And so I was like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, go ahead and give me that Invisalign. And it was cheaper than I thought it was. Um, I think Harden even got an Invisalign deal with his, if I'm not mistaken, mm. when he got it done. But something just happens. And once you find out it's not that hard to do, if you got the money, you are ridiculous if you don't get your grill fixed. Well, you know, Bomani, the strip club takes takes uh, dollar bills, no matter, no matter what your mouth looks like. So that's probably why yeah. he wasn't in a big rush. Yeah, but let me tell you something, boy. You get your grill fixed. As it's going on, you'd be like, man, what was I thinking? Why did nobody say anything? Because what I couldn't be was, like, I, I, saw, I shaved my head when I was like, I can't be the guy that, uh, the default guy you talk about for losing your hair. And then I realized I can't be, like, I spent a whole lifetime making fun of some people. But like, how you get your money, you still ain't got your grill fixed. And then I became that guy. Well, I, I definitely anticipated this to uh, turn into a uh, dental podcast. May, may, maybe this is the smart pivot. Maybe this is what we have to do, because I, I really don't think at this point games are going to be coming back anytime soon. Or, I, I mean, I don't think nah. they come back this season. Listen, we've got a lot of uh, really good uh, partners in the past for this podcast that, uh, you know, help you with uh, baldness and other problems. Why not add some dental stuff, too, you know? There you go. <laughs> exactly. So any uh, dental sponsors out there that, that want to sponsor the podcast, we would really appreciate it. We'll sell that. out for anyone, baby. Yes, we, we will absolutely show out. But, Bobani, we really, really do appreciate your time. This has been a lot of fun. Um, obviously, listeners, check out the Right Time podcast. Anything else that you, you want to plug for the time being? Oh, man, that's kind of what I got right now, baby. So, yeah, go check it out. The right Time. It's actually pretty entertaining. I think you'll like it. <laughs> I was just listening uh, to today's earlier uh, before the podcast. I I absolutely love the podcast. So I encourage all of our listeners to go support that. Um, and if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by leaving a rating, leave a review, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, and help cook those books. If you want to be part of our exclusive Discord chat, send a screenshot of their review to chasedownpod at gmail.com. Big thanks to Bomani. Big thanks to Carter, to all of our listeners. And until next time, go Cavs.